It's interesting, the people that are attending, and I remember when I was a young teenager, I was dragged kicking and screaming to church. I hated it. And uh, I, I lived a life in rebellion to um, the Christian faith. And so I stand here before you and I have absolutely no idea what's in your hearts and what's in your minds as you come to this service this morning. And there's people here who I'd like to think I know what they're thinking, but perhaps if our minds and hearts were revealed, I'd be quite shocked at what you really are thinking. But I want to tell you, I'm here today not just because of what this book says. I'm not here just because of the Bible. I'm here because something happened. Something incredible happened 2,000 years ago. And there's enough evidence for us to accept the story of our Lord Jesus Christ is true. There are so many arguments against Christianity. And to be honest, I'm a pretty simple fellow. I am not one of these guys who have very articulate ways of defending the Christian faith like some of those great apologists are. But I believe that this book contains true stories. And, and I, I just want to think about the evidence in this book for a little bit. When you see the books that are, that are contained in here, they were written and I believe that they were inspired by God's hand. I believe God breathed this word into people who actually put it down on paper. And when we read the scriptures, there's this common thread that runs all through the Old Testament and the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. I believe that right from Genesis to Revelation, it is talking about Jesus. I believe the Old Testament points forward, looking forward to the coming of the promised Messiah after the fall. I believe the Gospels speak about the birth, life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and I believe those accounts are true and I believe the books after that are talking about how we should be living in the time when we're looking forward for Jesus to return and to take us to be with him in all of eternity. Amen? Thank you. So some of you agree which is absolutely brilliant. But I want to ask you a question. I did this to my connect group, I, I had a quick look around and uh, there's only one person here who participated in this. If I was to say to you, many people came over to my house, I wonder how many you would say came. And as I said, I asked my connect group this, uh, only one of them clicked that it might have been something for a sermon. I said, I promise I won't mention your names individually. But when I said, how many would you say would come over to my house if I said many people came? One of them said 15. Two said 20, four said 30, three said 40, one said 50. Would you agree generally with those statements? I want to look at uh, just the start of Luke. If we look at Luke chapter 1, and you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, I'm just going to read one line. But uh, if you do, just to check I'm telling the truth, that's okay too. So Luke chapter 1. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Many. We hold within our hands four accounts. It doesn't even scratch the surface of those who wrote in that day about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps they didn't write about the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps they wrote about this man, Jesus. And the thing we have to realise is um, it wasn't cheap to write in those days. Now, it wasn't as exorbitant as some people would lead you to believe, but it wasn't cheap to write. So people only wrote about others who were significant. They didn't write about criminals. They didn't write about bad people. If they did, it was just in a passing gesture. It wasn't something that contained a lot of information. But we have Luke saying that many have undertaken to write about Jesus Jesus and all that he did. That in and of itself should make you sit up and pay attention to what is said about this man. Jesus is a historical fact. He lived and breathed upon this earth. The only question you need to ask is, is he who he claimed to be? And I believe there is enough evidence contained in our scriptures to prove that Jesus is the very Son of God. Those that wrote about Jesus wrote about a man who had a massive impact upon society. The account we have before us today is a first-hand account of John who was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And he writes only what he observes. He doesn't flourish it. He doesn't make it something that it wasn't. He just gives us the facts. And I believe it's 100% true. 100%. The cross must be central to each and every believer. It's the cross which shaped my life. And it should be the cross that shapes your life as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I've seen it transform lives. I thank you, Lord, that you compiled the scriptures in such a way that we have this incredible account of the life of Jesus. And Lord, my desire is that our hearts will be open to you. Some of us have strayed, Lord, who once believed firmly and we've strayed. Call us back to you today, Lord. Some of us think this is a fairy tale. Father, just let us pursue truth and reveal that truth to them, I pray, Lord. And some of us are here with that mixed feeling of rejoicing because of what Jesus has done, but also in agony because our sin caused that. Father, just speak into our lives. And Lord, let this message be used to touch people's lives today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we know... And as I just said, John's account is the only eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion that is contained in the Gospels. And so, as a result, it contains some details that the other Gospel accounts don't. So it's only in the book of John that we read that bit about Jesus entrusting Mary to John. And uh, Jesus, that was Jesus' mother. And and I, I question why Jesus actually did that. And I wonder if it was because at that stage, Jesus' brother didn't actually believe that he was the Messiah. It was only after his resurrection that they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I also wonder if it's because Jesus knew that out of all of them, John was going to live the longest. I don't know. Either way... Jesus made sure that his mother was taken care of. It is in the account of John alone that we read the sayings of Jesus, uh, I thirst and it is finished. Uh, It's only in John's gospel where we read that Jesus' side was pierced and that water and blood flowed out of that side after that that was pierced. And we know that that happened so that his legs would not be broken in order to fulfill scripture. We know that 
It is in John's account only that says that Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha. And that's true. He started off carrying that cross. And we know that Simon of Cyrene was roped in in the other Gospels who carried that uh, for Jesus because he was unable to. John alone mentions the inscription that was above Jesus. The other Gospels mention it, but John alone mentions that that was written in three separate languages. And that is a very significant point, uh, which we will cover a little bit later in this message. But today, we all choose to reflect and remember the cross of Christ. It's interesting when we look at this Gospel of John and we see that John chooses to limit the horror of the cross. He chooses to limit exactly what happened to Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And uh, I, I think that that is for a good reason. Those that John wrote to would have known the horror of the cross. They would have seen and understood the incredible suffering that those who were crucified endured. It was a means of death, a means of execution, so horrendous that Roman citizens were not permitted to be executed that way. It simply wasn't permitted. And the suffering was so great, so humiliating. The pain of crucifixion so intense, they actually created a new word to express what that pain is. That word is excruciating. It's as painful as crucifixion. And this word, the base word for excruciating, actually means out of the cross. We would say in English that excruciating pain is intense, unbearable, extreme physical and mental pain, causing intense suffering, unbearable distress, relentless torture. And it was Pilate who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. So they took Jesus out and went out, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic was called Golgotha. Jesus would have been handed over to an execution squad. This execution squad would have composed four soldiers. Those four soldiers would have then travelled with Jesus every part of his journey, and they would have stayed with him until he died. It would have been them who confirmed Jesus was actually dead. Jesus, from this point on, is a dead man walking. There's no question about it whatsoever. And as Jesus begins the journey to Golgotha, he is carrying his cross. And I think it's been more or less confirmed that that was only the cross beam that Jesus would have carried. But in his weakened state, because of the flogging that he endured and everything like that, he was unable to carry that cross. Now, the Romans didn't want anyone to die before their punishment was carried out. So they quickly called upon Simon of Cyrene for to help Jesus carry that cross. And Simon wouldn't have had a choice. As soon as he was pointed out, it was either take it or die. That's just the way it worked in that day. And they went to this place, the Hill of the Skull. In this day and age, this actually sits above a bus terminal in Jerusalem, I, I've, I took this photo. In Jesus' day, it was by the entry and exit, the main entry and exit to Jerusalem. And 
They executed people there so that those entering and leaving the city would see the criminals, would see the charges against them, and it would serve as a deterrent to any and all to commit any crimes against the Romans. And so the charges and offences of the criminals that were there that day, Jesus and two others, would have been stated on a placard. And Jesus' charge was the king of the Jews. We know from the other three Gospels, I mention a phrase similar to this. Uh, and, and John's Gospel is the one that provides a few more details than the other. And so John's Gospel says that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And we know that the Jews saw this inscription and many people saw it because of where Jesus was crucified, that main thoroughfare of people entering and leaving the city. And the differences in these inscriptions, the differences in the Gospels have been explained for many different ways, many different reasons. I really don't think it matters because the basic guts and cruts of what each of them says is this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And I think that's all that needs to be said. None of the little nuances make any difference to that statement. So this man crucified is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And John says it was written in three languages. And I believe it was written in three languages for a very good reason. I believe this is God's preordained will that it would be in those three languages. It was written in Aramaic, which is part of the Hebrew family of languages. And it was written in that language so every Jew who walked past there who could read would be able to read it in his language. It was written in Latin so that every Roman who walked past there and could see it would read it in his own language. It was written in Greek, the common language of the day, so everyone who walked past would read it and see it. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I want you to think about what is happening in Jerusalem at this time. This is during Passover, and we know that at this time of year there was between 10 and 20 times the population arriving in Jerusalem. They would have had it well over a million people at this time. We know 30 years later, there was 2.5 million people who went to the Jewish Passover in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so heaps and heaps of people from the known world were traveling to Jerusalem at this time. So Pilate, in one simple act, has ensured the nations are told Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews. As difficult as it is for us, this side of the cross, as hard as it is to accept, knowing that Jesus was innocent, that he was condemned to death in a true kangaroo court, it wasn't a mistake. This was God's perfect timing. This was God's perfect will. It all happened in accordance with his preordained plan. And so in order for humanity to be saved from the curse of sin and death, a perfect sacrifice had to be made. Jesus is that sacrifice. God himself in Jesus fulfilled the eternal plan of God when he bled and died in my place, when he bled and died in your place, when he bled and died in the place of every human who ever was, who ever will be. Think about what John tells us back in John 3. 16 and 17. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's great mighty plan fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in death, in response to those who crucified him. Jesus didn't condemn his killers and he doesn't condemn us. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He came to give us life, but it could only be attained through his death. Isn't it interesting that Pilate suddenly develops a backbone and so the chief priests come to him and we know from the gospel accounts that they decided that they didn't want, Jesus, didn't want Jesus to be seen as the king of the Jews and they said, why don't you just change it a little bit and just add, uh, this man claimed or this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I have written what I have written. He's saying, I'm not changing it. This is the way it is. And the Jewish leaders hate that Pilate has put the inscription the way that it was. But rather than being forceful, they ask this simple question of Pilate. But he refuses to change it. And so the truth remains. He won't put a lie in the place of truth. And in these final moments that we've read through in this passage of Scripture, Jesus continues to prove that he is the promised Messiah by fulfilling Scripture, by fulfilling prophecy. And so we're just going to look at a couple of those things. And I don't want to get into any disagreements about how many prophecies were actually fulfilled. It's interesting that it just gets more and more complicated the further you dig into it. But it is very general to say, and I'm going to go with what everyone agrees on, that there's well over 300 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus in his life. In fact, it would be closer to 350 and perhaps just over. That's impossible. Only God could do that. Some say that there were 28 prophecies of Jesus fulfilled in the last 24 hours of his life. Again, it's impossible. These things were predicted hundreds of years before, thousands in some cases. But we're going to look at a few anyway uh, that are mentioned in these passages. Remember there are four guards in this execution squad and what would happen to a condemned person? Uh, they would take them to where they were crucified, in this case Golgotha. They would strip them naked. They would nail them to the crossbeam, the crossbeam would be raised and it would be fixed to the post that was already standing and then they'd nail his feet to that post. And so whatever earthly possessions were remaining of the person who was crucified would become the possessions of that death squad. They were permitted to take those things. These are Roman guys. These guys didn't know the scriptures. These guys had no role in and of themselves to fulfill. They were just hoping to get some possessions for themselves. But their very actions fulfilled Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. And Jesus, most likely, like average Joe in Israel at that time would have had an outer garment. He would have had a belt. He would have had some sandals. He would have had a head covering. 
And it's most likely that these four Roman soldiers took one of each of those items um, because they could and because there were four items there. But when it came down to the inner garment, that final garment of Jesus, it was woven in one piece. And these guys decided rather than tear it and share that amongst themselves, they should just gamble for it and see who wins and gets to keep this one garment. Therefore, fulfilling scripture. It was perhaps the most valuable of Jesus' meager possessions, but they didn't want to destroy it. And so they gambled for it and divided his garments amongst them that way. And Jesus also said, knowing that all was finished, I thirst. And I don't know about Pastor Darrell, but some of the commentaries and what they believe I thirst means, they put this super spiritual spin on it and it's got all these things and it's like, wait a minute, what if he was just thirsty? You think about what he has endured. He wasn't offered anything to drink all the way through this. He was offered something which was more a narcotic, which he refused to take. And so he has been beaten. He has carried a cross until he stumbled and fell. He is hanging in the sun. And mind you, it's hot in Israel. Every time he wants to breathe, he has to drag himself up on his arms, push with his legs. It takes an incredible physical effort in order to do that. I think he was thirsty. It's natural for those on the crosses to be dehydrated. And in this couple of words, I thirst, Jesus is showing one last time. He's totally human. He suffers just like any other man. He thirsts just like any other man. He lived and died fully man. But he also fulfilled scripture. And Pastor Darrell's going to love this. This is the ESV version. They gave me poison for food, and for my, first, my thirst they gave me sour wine. This is the fulfillment of scripture. Uh, what is poison, Pastor Darrell? In the, in the NIV, it, it, it's gall. So, so the translation in the NIV is actually better in this case. And so we know that Jesus was offered gall, which is the poison that is mentioned here, because gall was this um, drink. It was bitter and it was toxic and it was believed to have a narcotic effect upon people. It was offered to those being crucified in order to numb the pain. And when they offered it to Jesus, he said, no. Nah, I want people to realise that I'm speaking in my own mind, my right mind. I don't want anything to affect what I'm about to do. And so he refused the poison, the, the gall that was offered to him. But when they offered him the sour wine, he drank it. The sour wine would have been the Roman soldiers. It was in a jar by the cross. It was there for them to drink uh, while they waited for these guys to die because they would have been there for quite a lengthy period of time. No one else would have been brave enough to offer it to Jesus. And you note they didn't lift the jar to Jesus' mouth because as much as we see the cross well elevated, they weren't that high off the ground. And so they could reach that. And so they put it on the sponge with a hyssop lead. They didn't want to touch Jesus. And they allowed him to suck on the sponge. And after that occurred, Jesus said, it is finished. These are the last spoken words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's one 
of seven sayings that Jesus had on the cross. And this is considered to be the sixth. And it's hugely significant. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want you to understand, it is finished wasn't a gasped last word of a man who had done his best in life and just couldn't hold on anymore and submitted to his wounds. That's not what happened. This is a word of victory. This is a word of triumph. And the original meaning of the word translated, it is finished here, you would have heard Pastor Darrell say in what he read out earlier. It means it is accomplished. So what was it that Jesus accomplished? What was it that was finished? And we can say easily that he had completed the whole will of God for him. God sent Jesus into the world that he should live as a man, God in the flesh, incarnate we say. He would proclaim the good news that we can come into a meaningful relationship with God and Jesus would heal people, he'd work miracles, he'd cast out demons, he would face shame, ridicule, humiliation at the hands of those he created. He would suffer incredibly and he would ultimately die. But in his death, he would fulfill the one requirement in order for us to be forgiven. He would have lived a perfect, sinless life in obedience to God. He would have fulfilled every requirement of the law. And as Jesus said, it is finished. He was sure, he was confident, every requirement had been fulfilled. The price had been paid. God's just, just wrath had been spent upon him. And I can testify the standing this side of the cross. I'm healed by his wounds. He died in my place. He took my sin upon himself. And he did the same thing for each one of you. Jesus' sacrifice is complete. Nothing else was required. It is enough and still is. His work had pleased the Father. Never, ever again would there need to be blood to atone for sin. And Jesus knew it was done. So he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. No one killed him. He gave his spirit up at God's preordained perfect time. And he did so because he had won. It is finished. Think about what happened according to the other gospel accounts. The temple veil was torn from top to bottom. The holy of holies was revealed. It was an act of God physically showing what had already spiritually occurred. The barrier between man and God had been removed. There was no longer any need for the temple. There was no longer any need for those sacrifices. It was finished. 
It had been removed through the Lord Jesus Christ. There was this earthquake and many tombs were opened and we know that many saints came into Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into glory. And the centurion, this godless Roman soldier who had stood at the cross of Christ the entire time, looked at everything that had happened, considered all that Jesus has said. He looked at how Jesus had conducted himself in his final moments of his life and how Jesus had died and he said, surely this is the Son of God. And he was terrified because he had just witnessed the death by his own hand of the Son of God. Today is Good Friday. We call it Good Friday, even though what happened is appalling and sickening. The account we have read today speaks about the terrible treatment Jesus received at the hands of his creation. John 1.11 says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But I want you to look again John 3, 16 and 17 with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world may be saved through Why do we complicate the Christian faith? I want you to hear quite clearly. There is nothing you can do to be saved except accept this by truth, accept this by faith. That's all it is, nothing more. And accepting that we have lived our lives our own way and haven't honoured Jesus and God as king. At this time of year, I believe this is where God would have us to be. He wants me and he wants you to reflect on the cross of Christ and all that means or should mean to us. He wants us to understand that he has done everything he can to have a relationship with you. He loves you. He doesn't condemn you. He wants you. And he doesn't want you just for your time on this earth. He wants you for all of eternity. He wants you to stand in his presence in glory on that day. And he wants to welcome you. He wants you to have eternal life. And all you have to do is accept that Jesus died for you on Good Friday, submitting your life fully to him. In Jesus, he's provided the way for you to be with him. There is no other way. So I ask you to consider it. I ask you to reflect on it. I ask you in Jesus' name, to submit your life to him, Christian and non-Christian alike. Let's use this day to recommit ourselves to Jesus, to thank him for all he has done for us, to honour and glorify his name. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I've had so many people testify to me that they sat in a hotel room one day and picked up a Gideon Bible and gave their life to you as a result. I thank you, Lord, that when we seek truth, 
We don't need people to come alongside us and hammer us. You, by Holy Spirit, when we pray to you and ask you to reveal your truth to us, you will do that. And Lord, I pray that for each and every person here this morning. I pray they'll have a desire to know truth and to know it in this life, to know it now, Lord. And that you, by power of Holy Spirit, will minister into their lives, Lord. You will reveal your truth to them and ultimately reveal yourself to them so they can come into a saving relationship with you. And Father, I know there's people here this morning that you're challenging right now about that very thing. Father, will you give them the guts to come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Darrell or talk to another trusted Christian friend? Your desire is that not one be lost, Lord. And you've done everything you possibly could in sending Jesus to this earth to die in my place, to die in our place, Lord, so that our sins could be forgiven. Help us not to take that lightly. And Lord, I want to pray between now and Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus that we'll be a people who talk about you, that we'll be a people who dwell upon you, that we'll be a people who are found studying your word and just a people who return to you and thank you again and again and again for your marvellous works and deeds. So Father, for all these people here, go with them and before them. Soften their hearts to you this week. Let them be found in your word. And may you reveal yourself to them in a very real and powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless one of